Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. My name is Nora Hawkins, and I'm a research assistant with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. It's my privilege to be speaking with Heidi Binko this afternoon. Ms. Binko is the Associate Director of Special Climate Initiatives at the Rockefeller Family Fund, where she works closely with national and regional advocates and foundations working at the nexus of climate and coal. Heidi has played a leading role in creating strategic partnerships between funders and advocates who are committed to transitioning local economies throughout the U.S. off of coal. In addition to her busy full-time job, Ms. Binko serves as a board member of the Environmental Grantmakers Association, and as a co-chair of the Climate and Energy Funders Group. Before joining the Rockefeller Family Fund in 2008, Ms. Binko was executive director of the West Wind Foundation, a not-for-profit organization based in Virginia. Ms. Binko is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Heidi, it's wonderful to have you back at Yale. Thank you for taking the time to share your insights and expertise with us today. Thank you for having me, Nora. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Before delving into your current work, I'd like to go back to the beginning of your career. What first inspired you to dedicate your professional life to environmental issues? Well, the year was 1995. <laughs> no, I, I won't go back quite that far. No, actually, when I was at Notre Dame, I ended up um, in the in the government department. They had a special program called PPE, which was a concentration in politics, philosophy, and economics. And what was interesting about that is, as I was going through my coursework in that area, environmental issues always were at the front of my mind because environmental issues are really a nice cross section of all three of those areas. So um, when I was a junior at Notre Dame, I decided to leave the university for a semester and go spend some time in Washington D.C. with groups that were working um, on. Capitol Hill on the ground on environmental issues, and I ended up doing a, an internship with the Nature Conservancy in their government relations division, and I absolutely fell in love with it. That was the time when groups were talking about the Endangered Species Act and reauth reauthorizing ESA, and there was a critical debate around private property rights, and it was fascinating, and I was I was hooked. Also, I should say, during college, I also read Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut, which, which only further inspired me to work on environmental issues. Wonderful. That sounds like such an interesting, valuable experience. As a student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, I have to ask you, what experience, what experiences here set you on the path to your current work? Well, I, I guess I could answer that question in, in two ways. I mean, there are the, the issues and then the more general uh, analytics and problem solving. So on the issue side, I, I was here between 2000 and 2002, and obviously climate change was a critical issue back then. So we spent a lot of time talking about climate change issues. I also did some, some thinking and a bit of researching on private finance issues. So that was my first entree into the, into the philanthropic community, which at the time I didn't think I would end up working in, but but that is how it ended up. Um, I think the other thing, though, too, is while at Yale, you really, my, I received such a great, well-rounded education. Uh, we were really taught to be um, analytical problem solvers. And when you have that background and that expertise, you can apply it to a number of different issue areas. So I think that, you know, my education here really gave me the confidence to switch from land conservation to climate change and know that I could try to tackle those problems, too. Absolutely. Um, as you just alluded to, prior to funding environmental efforts as you do now, my understanding is that you were focused on Western land conservation issues, especially in the Rocky Mountains, and that you worked on public 
policy at the Land Trust Alliance. What originally stimulated your interest in land conservation, particularly in the West? So it was the the internship at the Nature Conservancy. Um, So I was there for a semester in my junior year uh, during college. And then I actually, I had some friends who would go out to Boulder, uh, Colorado in the summers. They were runners for Notre Dame and they would go out there to train. So I went with them one year and absolutely fell in love with Boulder and fell in love with Western landscapes. And after I got done with college, I went to D.C. and worked, um, worked for LTA for a couple of years. And after doing that for a number of years, I had a I had a, a bit of experience doing policy, but I wanted to know what it was like to apply those ideas and principles to on-the-ground conservation efforts. And given my interest in land conservation and then my experience in the West and Boulder, I decided to go back to Colorado and work on the ground with ranchers and farmers who wanted to conserve their land. What insights gained in that work, either working on larger policy issues regarding land conservation or directly with farmers and ranchers, have you carried over into your coal and climate work today? You know, it's interesting. Um, two, two ways to answer that question. So first of all, when I was out there, I ended up working with lots of different types of people. So um, while my experience up to that date had been with traditional environmentalists, um, I was working with ranchers and farmers and people who were uh, had completely different political views than I did um, but we we connected around the land right so when I started to when I when I um, came back to graduate school and then went to the southeast and started to work on climate issues here really working on climate change issues or in any environmental issue in the southeast the politics were are very very similar in both regions so having an understanding of having the ability I think to just really connect with people because at the end of the day that's all that's what it's about um, I gained that from my work Work in the West. Um, and then, you know, that's also helped me. So that helped me in the Southeast. And it's actually helped me now with my job at Rockefeller as we're doing quite a bit of work on Powder River Basin issues. And I'm back to working with ranchers and farmers again, but now in Montana and Wyoming. How did you first get involved with grant making? I think you alluded to this a little bit before, maybe in your coursework. Sure. Um, so after I, I graduated in 2002, and I was hoping to go and work for the Nature Conservancy in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it was a it was a really bad time for the economy. The end of 2001, a lot of um, a lot of foundations were hit hard because of the dip in the the economy then. And then by you know by extension, a number of environmental NGOs ended up um, implementing hiring freezes. So I wasn't able to go work for TNC. So I had to find something else to do. And I was introduced to a uh, an individual donor in Charlottesville who had a foundation, but who didn't really have anybody to run it, and he didn't have anyone to, um, you know, to evaluate his his programs or the groups that he was working with or anything. So I, I started working for uh, the what was the what was the West Wind Foundation, and I helped the I helped the foundation build its programs from the ground up. Um, we had a, a a program in the environment, and we had a program in women's reproductive health and rights. So that was in May of two thousand and two. So I've been working on um, working in the environmental philanthropic community ever since. So what motivated you when you were at West Wind to look into Rockefeller Family Fund? What brought you to RFF? They came to me. Wonderful. <laughs> Let the record stay. <laughs> no, actually. So um, at, at West Wind, um, the trustees there were really interested in climate change, but they wanted to 
identify, we, we all wanted to identify a way that a relatively small, modest foundation could make a difference on climate change. And as you can imagine, that's not an easy question to tackle, right? So at the time, um, I remember thinking about and learning about the efforts that were happening around the, uh, around the country. Uh, New England was moving on Reggie. Western Governors Association was moving. Um, different, you know, if you, if you took a map of the United States and you started to shade in who was moving, there was this big, giant void in the southeast. And we were based in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I, where I remain today. And it just became clear to me that, you know, for a small foundation based in the region, the best thing that we could do on climate change is to try to invest in the advocates in the region, um, try to move the state's uh, congressional delegation. That could be the biggest place where we could really make a difference. And of course, once you start thinking about southeast climate issues, you back right into coal very, very quickly. MTR is a big problem in Appalachia, and the region is more than 60% dependent on coal as an energy source. So it was probably 2006 I started working on on coal issues. Um, At the time, uh, just about a year or so before, the uh, coal industry had launched uh, what is is known as the the big coal rush, where there were 150 coal-fired power plants proposed around the country. And in Virginia, we saw two of those. So I ended up working with a lot of national a lot of national funding partners, RFF being one of them, the Energy Foundation was another, um, on some coal issues in Virginia. So it was really as a result of those working relationships that the opportunity at Rockefeller came up. And uh, what was nice about it is Westwind was a great opportunity and a phenomenal experience, but I was working on a lot of different issues. Um, Rockefeller gave me the opportunity to really go deep on climate change and coal, which is what I wanted to do next. Definitely. Well, the Westwind Foundation funds projects both domestically and internationally, while RFF focuses on programs in the U.S. What was the change in scope like for you, and what do you see as the advantages and disadvantages of working at each level, maybe perhaps particularly relating to climate change? Mm-hmm. You know, actually, it's interesting because Rockefeller is a, do- is a domestic foundation. Every once in a while, um, we've had programs that, or we've we've launched programs in certain areas where maybe um, an international grant or two made sense. So we've actually done some international grant making on coal. We, we supported um, advocates that were just starting to work on coal exports in Australia, and so we gave some of the first grants there that really launched that movement. Um, we did that in combination with a few of our other funding partners. Also, too, the the coal industry, coal used to be burned um, very, very close to where it was mined, and that is changing. So if you're thinking about coal and you want to solve the problem of coal, you have to think about it internationally. You have to understand the global fl- flow of coal. You really can't stick to arbitrary political boundaries. So what I've been finding in my work at RFF is that those those sort of those political boundaries are are very 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 fuzzy. Definitely, thank you. Well, clearly RFF has an extensive screening and vetting process for awarding grants to environmental causes. Can you briefly walk us through the basic characteristics of an organization or program that they would need to meet in order to qualify? And in your mind, what is kind of the ideal environmental advocacy program? Sure, sure, a- absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, as a as a national funder, we. We receive um, so many letters of inquiry from so many wonderful organizations, and I wish we could fund them all, but but unfortunately, we just we just can't. Um, We tend to work a little bit differently than other funders. Um, We are, I would say, much more proactive and less reactive. So even though we do receive um, LOIs and inquiries. 
um, because we have such a narrow focus in our programming, we tend to know the players in the field and we search out individuals, right? Um, all that being said, in my opinion, um, it's really all about people and leadership. It's about those, those leaders at the top. You can have a great idea, you can have a great strategy, but unless you have the right people there and ready to implement it, it doesn't go anywhere. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Um, How do you balance supporting diverse efforts ranging from grassroots advocacy to private sector education to lobbying? And how important is it to you to create a portfolio that balances these different efforts at different scales and among different sectors? That's a great question. So um, when I think about like education versus grassroots organizing versus legal strategies, they're all different types of strategies, right? So I think as funders, what the ideal thing to do is, if you can, and you, you can't always do this, but if you can, support a number of different strategies and see what works because it's it's not always the case that you're going to know it's going to be successful in the end, right? So that's what we we try to do if the, if the problem warrants it. Um, we do have uh, some areas that we tend not to uh, not to, to work in, such as research, um, just because that that tends to be you know we, we, we tend to support more frontline groups. So it's it's less it's probably less about making sure that the portfolio is balanced and more about making sure that we pick the the strategies that we think are the most effective for the particular problem at hand. Definitely. So once a project is funded, once an organization has been selected, what is RFF's role? That depends. So I would answer that two different ways. So we have, and I, th- I think about two different buckets at the foundation of, of grantees. We've got our core grantees, and these are organizations uh, like the Environmental Integrity Project, uh, like some of uh, some of the other uh, groups that we've worked with for a number of years, who we are completely aligned with the the mission, the goals, the objectives of the groups. And so for those groups, it tends we you know we we tend to to support them on an ongoing basis. So um, there's a there's less of a differentiation um, or a line of demarcation when the grant period ends or begins. Um, that I would say is probably about the case with 25% of our grantees. The other 75 we're we're really trying new things. We're kind of constantly trying new things. And so um, I'll give you an example. We just gave a, uh, a $25,000 um, grant, a planning grant. Actually, we ended up turning it into $50,000 to uh, a group of advocates that are working on Gulf Coast export issues, right? So in this situation, there are a number of different organizations. They are looking to learn from what other uh, other groups have done in other areas of the country. Um, we've given the, giving the grant was sort of the first stage of the process, right? Because now comes planning the meeting, trying to connect them with other organizations that have done, um, that have resources that can help them there, um, and then thinking about really what the most effective strategies are. So two different ways depending on, on where on what, what type of organization we're talking about. Great. What is one of the projects you are most excited to fund in 2012 and why, and what is its current status? I could talk for a long time about this, but I won't. <laughs> no, and also a very good question. So it's the Western Coalfields Alliance. So WCA is a co- coalition of seven different national, regional, and local uh, environmental organizations that are working on Powder River Basin mining issues, right? So they're working on everything from, uh, they actually, the, the way that they would describe it is a, is a three-legged stool. They're very connected to the groups that are working on coal export issues in the Pacific Northwest and also now in the Gulf because a lot of PRB coal is going to go out of Texas. Um, but their three-legged stool is working on stopping the expansion of mining, um, stopping the expansion of critical railroad infrastructure that needs to go in, right, to go to those Gulf Coast or those uh, Pacific Northwest 
Northwest communities. And then um, thirdly, thinking about how through um, through that rail infrastructure they can stop exports. What they've been doing more recently, too, with help from some other analysts in the field, is look at the um, the leasing reform, uh, the leasing program of the federal government. So in the PRB, uh, uh, most of the coal, 80% of the coal is actually federally owned, which means the U.S. The US taxpayers own it. And so what we found, what advocates have found uh, working with um, an institute um, that's been associated with Rockefeller Family Fund is that the federal government, the Bureau of Land Management in particular, has been giving away the nation's federal coal for the last 30 years, amounting to a, a roughly a $30 billion loss to federal taxpayers. Mm-hmm. So the coalition has recently been looking at that um, leasing reform and uh, even more hot off the presses is royalty reform. That sounds like really critical work. Um, so you're, as I mentioned before, you're part of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. You're actually a board member. And it provides a forum for enhanced communication among various groups that are funding environmental efforts. How often do different grant-making groups collaborate on larger projects? And is there ever a concern about funding overlaps and preventing those overlaps? Mm-hmm. So um, we should, I think, as a community... Uh, collaborate more. And we are getting to the point where I think we're doing that and we're being much more strategic about resources. You know, at the end of the day, we don't have enough money collectively to, to, to solve these problems. So we need to work together. We need to work together better and we need to work together smarter. So one of the things that, that I've done um, as co-chair of the board of EGA and then in my other roles as um, co-chair of the Climate and Energy Funders is I started a forum in 2009 called the Coal Funders Forum and actually groups that are working working on um, reforming the oil industry are replicating it as our sustainable ag funders now. So it's it's pretty exciting. But the idea there was that um, back, in, back in 2009, we had funders who were interested in the coal problem, but from a variety of different entry points. And so we tried to bring those funders together so that the, the strategies um, – so that they could collaborate on the strategies, really talk about what they're doing, and identify ways that they could collaborate. So that partnership has really grown, and as I mentioned, it's being replicated by by other places. So uh, you know, a good bit of work's been done done in that area on funder collaboration, but um, more needs to be done. That's great to hear. Um, so with the EGA, um, I know the EGA has hosted some very impressive environmental thought leaders at its various events throughout the year. Who is the most compelling speaker you heard from at one of their events? Oh, there's been some wonderful people at EGA, and it's been—it's really been an honor and a privilege to be able to work with with that organization. But through the years, and I think this will be my twelfth EGA that I'll attend this year, um, so I've seen a lot of great, great keynotes and great speakers. But three people stand out: um, Kumi Naidu from Greenpeace International, mm-hmm. um, Wangari Mathai, who when I was at Yale here between 2000 and 2002, she was actually a visiting fellow or scholar. I can't remember what her title is, but she spent some time here. And then Al Gore. Um, so in the case of, of Kumi and Wangari, they just were, they spoke from the heart and they were so incredibly passionate. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to hear them speak, but they're both amazing individuals and their stories were really amazing. And Al Gore spoke to us, I, I believe it was in, in 2005, and I remember I was in the, in the front row, and he, he was just, he was fantastic. I mean, he was such a presence, and he gave such a commanding, um, uh, such a commanding talk on, on climate change that, uh, you know, you, you couldn't walk out of that room without thinking that, that you really wanted to devote more time to it. So uh, a lot of wonderful speakers over the years, but those three stand out. 
Definitely. Well, I know we're really grateful to have you here at Yale, and we're looking forward to hearing your presentation later this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to talking to you again shortly. Thank you for having me, Nora. These have been wonderful questions. It's lovely to talk with you.